Have your Bibles open at John and chapter 2. John's Gospel and chapter 2. Now they say that first impressions matter greatly. You know, you never have a second chance of making a good first impression. Research shows that people make a a snap judgment in just a few seconds of another person, based on how they dress, based on how they speak, based on how they hold themselves. And you can think of all the occasions where making a good first impression is really important. Job interview, going on a date. In the passage before us this morning, you will have read, you will have heard read that Jesus, this was his first sign, his first miracle, his first powerful action that would reveal to people who he was and what he came to do. And as I've been thinking about this passage, isn't it interesting that he chose turning water into wine as the miracle to make his first major impression? Have you ever wondered to yourself, why was it that Jesus' coming out party, so to speak, was at a wedding feast? And the the major moment was his miracle of turning water into wine. Well, if you've got that question in your minds, as we work through this passage, hopefully we will discover the answer to it. This morning I have four very simple headings. The, the, The setting of this miracle, a wedding in Cana. The situation that necessitated this miracle they had run out of wine. The solution. Jesus taking six stone jar pots and having them filled to the brim with water, but then being turned into wine. And then finally, the significance of the sign. So the setting, the situation, the solution, and the significance. Let's, let's let John set the scene in verses 1 and 2. And the first thing that John draws our attention to is the precise day on which this wedding took place. Notice how verse 1 begins. On the third day. John in chapter 1, he's been very meticulous, hasn't he, in telling us which day it is, in keeping sequence of the days, starting in verse 29 and then verse 35 and then verse 43. And now John tells us on the third day, You see, this is the first week of Jesus' public ministry, and this is the last day in the week. This is the final event from his first week. And I think John's deliberate in, in drawing our attention to the third day because he wants us to connect this passage with what has just happened in the passage previous. Do you remember what we were thinking about last week? At the very end, from verse 43 onwards, It was the calling of Jesus' first disciples, but we're thinking about 
how Jesus called Philip. And Philip followed Jesus. And then Philip ran and got his friend and said to his friend Nathaniel, We have found the one of whom the law and the prophets speak of, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And remember what Nathaniel said, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? He was a skeptic who in a matter of moments was turned into a believer because Philip said, well, come and see. And Jesus saw him sitting under the fig tree before he even called him. And Nathaniel confessed, you are the son of God. You're the king of Israel. But that's not the point I really want to draw your attention to. Jesus then said to Nathaniel, you will see greater things than these. Then he said, truly, truly, I tell you, you will see heaven opened and angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And so as we come to chapter 2, three days after this event, we ought to come like the disciples with minds that are eager and expectant to see greater things and to see heaven opened on the Son of Man. So, okay, we've got the precise day. Next, John tells us the place where this wedding happened. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Now, You'll remember Galilee's the region, and it's the region where there are various villages and towns where Jesus and his disciples come from. So Jesus is from Nazareth, a, a town, a small town in Lower Galilee. The, the scholars estimated a population of about 500 people. Jesus grew up there in, in Nazareth. Then there's Bethsaida, where Andrew and Peter were from. The 39 miles from, uh, kilometers from Nazareth. And then there's this place, Cana. A tiny, insignificant village made up, the scholars reckon, of 60 people. And you know what's fascinating? One of Jesus' disciples hails from Cana. Do you know which one? Nathaniel. That's surprising. Because Nathaniel was the guy who said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, he came from a small, insignificant little village and he's saying, Jesus, he's saying, can anything come out, good come out of Nazareth? We learn that Nathaniel was from Cana in John chapter 21. But this little insignificant village is going to be remembered in history for being the place where Jesus performed his first miracle. The insignificant will become significant. So we've looked at the precise day. We've looked at the place where this wedding occurred. Now notice the people. Now I've read this passage many times, but only this week something stood out to me that hadn't really stood out to me. The first person that John draws our attention to as being in attendance at this wedding was Mary, the mother of Jesus. The first person John introduces us to is not Jesus. 
It's not the bride or the groom. It's Mary. Now we're going to see in this passage, Mary actually occupies quite a a prominent role in this wedding. And, and, And there are little hints that she may well have been on the catering team. And that might suggest us that she was actually related to the groom. You see, it would be the groom's, back then it was the groom's responsibility to provide all the necessary arrangements for a wedding. Fathers in this church with daughters probably long for the day we return back to the biblical model of grooms providing for their bride. Mary will bring it to Jesus' attention that there's a shortage of wine. Hence the reason, the suggestion, she may well have been the head of the catering team. But you know what's also interesting is John doesn't introduce Mary by her name. Three times he'll refer to in this passage. Three times he'll just say, the mother of Jesus. And Jesus won't even refer to her as mother. He'll say woman. Then notice in verse 2. We read about the other people in attendance at this wedding. Jesus was also invited with his disciples. Now we read about Jesus. And Jesus, if Mary was related to the groom, he would be a relative of the groom, so no surprise, he got an invite. And if Nathaniel's from Cana, everybody in Cana knew everyone, and everyone in Cana was probably related to one another, so no surprise, he got an invite. And maybe they all had plus ones, Mary, Jesus, and Nathaniel, and so they squeezed in the other disciples. Or maybe they knew the person, the groom, the bride and the groom, and they got an invite. Regardless, we have Jesus and his first five followers at this wedding. Now here's a question for you. What was your first impression of Jesus? Not in this passage, in your life. Now, I know you're thinking, I can't remember. I can't remember the first time I heard about Jesus. I can't remember the first time I learned about Jesus. Okay, so what is your impression of Jesus? Like today. What was Jesus, when, when you think about him, what's his character like? It's interesting that the first impression we get of Jesus in this passage is him accepting the invitation to a wedding. Meaning, Jesus was no recluse. Jesus enjoyed, he relished opportunities of whining and dining with people. He enjoyed people's happy moments. In fact, read through the Gospels, right? And Jesus is always whining and dining with people. Whether it's the up and outs, the the Pharisees, the religious leaders. Whether it's the down and outs, the tax collectors, the sinners. In fact, Jesus so often whined and dined that he was accused of being a drunkard and a glutton. What's your impression of Jesus? One of the things that John makes clear to us is that in chapter 1 and verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And Jesus here entered into Life's ordinary and life's great experiences. Jesus isn't distant from people. Jesus loves being with people. 
Maybe you're here and you're not yet a Christian. Maybe you're investigating Christianity. Maybe you've had a bad impression of Jesus. Maybe you've picked that up from, from a Christian you've met. Or maybe you've just picked a notion up from, from growing up perhaps in a Christian household. Maybe Jesus in your head is somebody who's distant. Perhaps he's a, a killjoy, a spoil sport. Don't let other people define your understanding of Jesus. Let scripture define it. The first impression we get of Jesus in this passage is that he delighted to be at this wedding. Every wedding I conduct, I say that Jesus sanctified the wedding at Canaan. Meaning that this wedding that I'm conducting is a special event because worthy and special because Jesus delighted to be present at them. Now, just as we move on from the John set and the scene, it's really interesting, right? That's all the details we get of this wedding. Now, today in the 21st century, weddings only last a day. Back in the 1st century in the ancient East, weddings lasted at least seven days. And um, it would be fascinating to, to know more of the details, but we don't have them. You know, sometimes if I'm at a wedding with Marina, she's asking all the questions about the bride's outfit. The, she's, she, she's having all this talk about the, the mother of the bride's outfit or, or the page boys and the, and the color of their tartan and, and, and all that sort of thing. The cakes, the, the men. We get none of that. We don't even get the contents of the sermon or the best man's speech. All we get is focus on what happened at, not the religious part of the ceremony, the wedding reception. seems as we pick things up in verse 3, we're probably a day or two into the festivities. Now, one of the things you need to know about the festivities of weddings in the ancient Near East was it was a free bar, all paid for brim. So as we pick things up in verse 3, we read, When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. So if you want to picture the scene, everyone's been having a good time. They're supping on the wine. And then suddenly there's panic all over the catering staff's faces. There is complete horror and shock. They've run out of wine. Now, point two is situation. This isn't just any kind of situation. This is a serious situation. And again, because we're not First, living in this first century, we're so far removed from the culture, the gravity and the seriousness of the situation just doesn't stand out to us. Let me put it like this. This is one of the worst imaginable things that could ever happen at a wedding in the first century. This is so serious. Now you might be thinking, how so? Wine's ran out, but they can drink water, they can drink grape juice. What's the problem? No, 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 no. They can't. In the ancient Near East, the single most important element in an ancient feast was wine. Why? Wine symbolized joy. We sang about it in Psalm 104. Wine gladdens the heart. The rabbis used to say, where there is no wine, there is no joy. Maybe some of you here agree with that statement. 
Remember, this was a wedding. This is one of the most joyful occasions in not just a young couple's life, not just in both their family's life, not just in their circle of friends, but in their community life. Where there is no wine marks the end of joy. Essentially, party over. Now remember, who's responsible for providing and making all the necessary arrangements? The groom. For him to miscalculate was so serious. Do you know, this is how serious it was. The relatives of the bride's family, the scholars tell us, could bring a lawsuit against him. And this was an honor and shame culture. And he would never live this down. He would be remembered as the groom who couldn't provide for his wedding. And so what hope would he have to provide for his family? Shame for the rest of his life. Not just for him, but for his bride. And not just for them, but for both of their families. And not just for a little season, but for their lives long. You know what shame is, don't you? Shame is that deep sense that we feel that we are unacceptable because of something we have done or something that's been done to us or something that is associated to us. Shame is that in our subjective feeling where we're exposed and we're humiliated. Now, we're not told the details here. I'm not given many details, but it seems that the one who felt acutely the impending shame and embarrassment was Mary. Because what we're told is that she runs up to Jesus and she says to Jesus, they have no wine. The wine's run out. The way that she says it kind of indicates that she expects Jesus to do something. So, 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 so some of the biblical scholars will point out, it seems that Joseph is probably passed away and Mary leans on her eldest son to help but remember Mary knows who her son is she was the one who was given by the angels the the prophecy regarding who he was she treasured that up in her heart and here Mary comes to Jesus with this request I want you to do something there's no wine this is going to mean shame for the, the groom our relative and the family of him and the bride and our family but you know what's really weird? The way Jesus responds. Woman! Now, in America, they say, ma'am. And ma'am's a polite, respectful term. That's the sense here. I think it's actually a positive statement. Not a negative, rude statement. But you know what it does imply? We've been reading about the mother of Jesus. It replies that there's maybe a, a change in the relationship between Jesus and his mom. He doesn't view himself as the son of Mary. He's the son of man. He's come to obey the Father's will. He's come to accomplish the God-given mission of the Messiah. Women, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, I suspect many of us have been at a wedding. And I can guarantee that at a wedding, 
whether it's at the wedding ceremony or the wedding reception, there's always a, there's always a few moments where we get lost in our own thoughts. Where we turn on ourselves and think about our own situation. So if you go to a wedding and you're single, and you see the beautiful bride and the groom, and you see the happiness and you see the joy, you know what a wedding can do? Expose and cause feelings of loneliness. It can get you thinking, oh, how I wish I could be happy like them. Oh, how I wish I had a spouse. Weddings do that. They don't just do that. They also, if you're a married couple and you're well married and you've, you're there with your, 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 your partner and you're, you're watching the wedding scene and you're watching them as they take their vows, as they kiss, you can look at your bride and think, oh, if we had the same love that they have today, oh, how could we get that back? You know, it's interesting. Here's Jesus. He's sitting at this wedding and he is... It seems that his mind is on other matters. He's thinking about his own situation. He says, my hour has not come. Every groom was responsible for making the necessary preparations for their wedding. Jesus is thinking about the preparations he needs to make for his wedding. His hour. And John refers more often than not to his death and resurrection. Jesus, to marry his bride, the church, it's going to cost him his life. And it seems that in this moment that Mary has this conversation with Jesus, his mind is on that matter. This wedding has thrown up the thought in Jesus' mind about where history is heading to, his wedding. Now, if you know John's gospel, right, this happens again and again, right? Jesus will go to a person, or a person will come up to Jesus, and they'll have a conversation, and it will be like they're talking cross-purposes. So, Nicodemus. Jesus is having a conversation. He says to Nicodemus, No one can enter the kingdom of God unless you're born again. So Jesus' mind is on spiritual matters. Nicodemus' response is, How can a man re-enter his mother's womb be born again? He's thinking in purely earthly terms. Jesus says, No, no, you need to be born from above by what in the spirit. Jesus is speaking to the Samaritan woman at the well and he speaks to her about how he has living water. And she says to him, Jesus, tell me where I can find this so I don't need to come here and draw it. She's thinking purely in earthly terms. Jesus is speaking about the Holy Spirit. Heavenly terms. Jesus having a conversation with his mother. They have no more wine. Jesus, my hour is not yet. Now, Just in case you get the wrong impression of Jesus. He loved this woman. And she knew that. Mary. And even from what Jesus says, there is not one moment where Mary thinks that he will not do something about this situation. Because do you know what she says next? She turns to the servants and she says to them, do whatever he tells you. In scripture, we don't get many of Mary's words, you know, we've got the Magnificat. But here are some of Mary's precious words. Do whatever he tells you. You want an application this morning? Do whatever Jesus tells you. 
Let them ring in your heart, ring in your mind, all day, all week, all your life. Do whatever he tells you. It's like Mary knows Jesus will do something about this wedding, and maybe she knows she knows the significance of wine. You see, the Old Testament tells us in Amos chapter 9, when there is an abundance of wine, the messianic age will dawn. Where there is abundance of wine, the messianic age will dawn. Amos 9 verse 13, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when new wine will drip from the mountains and flow from the hills. Here's Jesus at a party where there is no wine and he's going to save the party and in so doing he's going to reveal that he's the Messiah. It's amazing. Mary's statement and Jesus' thoughts are all bound together in who he is and why he's come. So we've got the setting, the situation quickly, the, the, the solution. Verses 6 through 8. Now there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. They filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw out some and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. How does Jesus rescue this serious situation? Remember, this will mean lifelong shame for the groom and the bride and their families. Jesus says, see those jars, those big stone pot jars that are used for purification? Fill them to the brim with water. Now, the reason they were there was because in the Old Testament, God had given ceremonial laws to his people where you'd have to wash your hands before you entered into God's presence. God is holy, we are unholy. God is perfect, we are imperfect. We are sinful. God, in this way of washing yourself before you entered his presence, was saying, you need to be cleansed, you need to be purified. Here Jesus does the most beautiful thing to save this wedding. He shows that he's the fulfillment of the ceremonial law. Take those six pots used for purification, fill them to the brim. What they point to is me. I'm the only one who can purify and cleanse people. (laughs) And notice they fill them to the brim. That means these water jars are now defunct. You can't add any more water to them for purification because now these water jars aren't just filled with water, they're filled with wine. Jesus has abolished in his coming the ceremonial law. Now, 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 this is amazing, right? The servants do just as Jesus tells them to do. Just as Mary instructed. And Jesus says to them, by the way, guys, take some of this to the master of the feast. So they take it to the master of the feast. And this is an incredible solution. Because what happens here? Remember the problem with the groom? Shame. Shame. Now look at what happens, right? When the master of the feast tasted the water that had now become wine, didn't know where it came from, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the wine people have drunk freely, the poor, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good until now. Now this is amazing. Do you see it? The master of the bridegroom honors the bridegroom. He was going to have a lifelong shame attached to him and his family and his bride. And now, in public, the master of the feast is like, wow! This is the most unforgettable wedding. You've got... the, The quantity of wine is incredible. Six full stone jars... 
20, 30 gallons, if you were to do the maths, that's like 600, 700 bottles. Imagine a wedding with that amount of drink. Not just any wine, not just the quantity, not just the quantity, but the quality. This is the finest wine. This is Jesus made own wine. The bridegroom had done to him what he could never have done for himself. His shame taken away and honor given. And he doesn't even know who did it. The servants know. The disciples know. He's got no idea. You know, um, we read Isaiah chapter 25. Because Isaiah chapter 25 reminds us that Christianity wasn't founded with the coming of Christ. Christianity was long prophesied thousands of years before Christ's coming, hundreds of years before Christ's coming. In Isaiah chapter 25, we're told that there will come a day when there will be a feast of rich food and the well-aged wine and aged wine, well-refined. And, 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 and in that prophecy, we're told that the one who will do it all will swallow up death. And by the way, did you notice what it also said? Verse 8. And the reproach or the shame or the disgrace of his people will be taken away. Hundreds of years before Christ came, it was prophesied who, what he'd come to do. And by the way, do you know when that feast is coming? At the wedding supper of the Lamb. So if you want to see heaven opened in the Son of Man, here it is. You want to know what heaven's like? A wedding party. You know the big deal about the wedding party of heaven? It's Jesus. See, the significance is he manifested his glory. See, the significance of this sign is that it pointed people to who he was. The abundance of wine, the Messiah. The the miracle of water to wine, the Son of God. But it pointed people to the fact that there is a wedding to come where he will be the host and he will serve his bride. He, he will make all the necessary preparations, no miscalculations, perfect, wonderfully, gloriously, because he is the glorious son of God. You want to see greater things? You want to see heaven opened? Here it is. It's absolutely stunning. And you know the amazing thing about heaven? is the wine will never run dry, meaning the joy will never cease. Because worthy is the Lamb who was slain, who bore away our sin. Worthy is the Lamb who took away our disgrace. Worthy is the Lamb who swallowed up death. He's the perfect bridegroom. Now, what's the response? Well, we're told there in verse 11. And the disciples believed in him. The question is, will you? This is who he is. This is what he came to do. This is why his first miracle was done at a wedding. Because this takes us right to the very heart of the gospel. The question is, will you believe in him? Not asking for blind faith. Faith based on evidence. This is the claim. This is who he is. This is what he came to do. Will you believe in him? 
Now you may ask the question, didn't in chapter 1 the disciples believe in him? Yes. See, if you're a believer, the more you see of the glory of Christ, the more your faith should be deepened and strengthened. You've never plumbed the depths of his glory. You've never exhausted his majesty. This passage says, see heaven opened. See not the son of Mary, see the son of man. And as we wrap this up, I think we can learn something from nearly every person that was at this wedding. Here's the application. Mary, she tells us in this story that we should take our problems to Jesus. And you can ask him, share them with him, and he can do it above and beyond anything you can imagine. It's just his way. When he sees fit. And he knows best. See, the servants, they give us another point of application. Do whatever he says to us. Obey him. Take him at his word. Fill it to the brim, fill it to the brim. Take it to the master, took it to the master. Do what Jesus says. See, the bridegroom, he's oblivious. But even he in the story reminds us that Jesus loves to save the day. He takes away shame. And he gives not just lifelong, but eternal lifelong honor to those he saves. The master of the feast, he reminds us that Jesus saves, saves the best to last. See, as a Christian, the best is yet to come. Next time you're at a wedding, it's just a tiny taste of what is to come. Next time you drink a, a fine wine or fine grape juice, the best is yet to come. And the disciples... The disciples, they show us that Jesus is for real. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. John wrote this gospel for that simple purpose. To reveal that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. And that by believing in him, we would have life and life eternal. That's why Jesus' coming out party was the wedding. Let's pray. Jesus, we pray that what we've just heard of you, seen of you, would leave a long and lasting impression upon our minds and hearts. Thank you for the way that a wedding showcases your purpose, opens up to us heaven. Thank you that the heart of what you've come to do is to fill your people with the joy of your salvation, lift away our shame, take away our sin. And you want to wed our souls to yourself. Hallelujah. What a savior. What a grim you are. And we praise you and worship you for this first and lasting impression. May it linger all of our lives long until that day we drink with you in glory. We pray this in your name. Amen.